Our Father, we're grateful that you brought us together today to press on in the study of uh, Zechariah. Pray that you help me as I teach and those who are here to learn that collectively we would um, come to some knowledge of your truth and your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to everybody. Uh, we started last week up in the dean's class, a, a, I guess a seven or eight week series on Zechariah. Um, and if you have phones or you know the ability to access the text, that, that would be helpful. Um, and maybe for future reference, if you uh, you know if you bring your phones, you might want to get a, a Bible app. There's some great free ones out there. I think you get the ESV for free on your phone. No, I probably get everything for free on your phone now. Um, but I, I commend that to you. So we're in Zechariah. If you remember, well, I won't assume that you were here last week, but um, Zechariah is the second to the last of the prophetic books. Um, it's, it's also the second to the last of the, of the books that we refer to as the Minor Prophets, or maybe more properly, the Book of the Twelve. Um, so the, these, this is a, a book that's sort of nestled in the back. And it's one that, frankly, has scared me a little bit, so I forced myself to get into it. Um, it's, it's a bizarre book. And people wrestle, even to this day, in various commentary literature, trying to come to terms with some of the imagery that Zechariah the prophet uses, but also uh, trying to come to terms with um, where where was this born historically? What were the issues, uh, the, the circumstantial issues that gave rise to the issues that are at play here? So th- there are th- this is a book that's shrouded in some level of mystery, but at the same time, its reception into the canon witnesses to the fact that this is a word that will continue to speak into future generations. That, by the way, just as an aside note, is, is a healthy way to understand um, from, from a canonical standpoint why the prophetic literature exists. I mean, the prophetic literature exists as a written document that goes beyond the original moment of either public speaking or even original writing. The prophets were collected and preserved for the sake of an ongoing divine word and testimony for future generations. You see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 8 and in Isaiah chapter 30, two places in the book of Isaiah where the prophet tells his disciples or those who are following in his prophetic tutelage to write these things down for a future generation. Preserve this. Write it down. We saw this in the beginning of Zechariah last week very quickly where Zechariah says, where are your ancestors now? Verse 5 of chapter 1. Um, and do the and the prophets do they live forever? Uh, th- these are rhetorical questions. In other words, your ancestors and Zechariah will talk about the former prophets. Who does he mean by the former prophets? I believe Zechariah means figures like Isaiah and figures like Jeremiah, who are now off the scene and past. We're talking a couple of couple of centuries away from Isaiah now. Um, where 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 are your ancestors that didn't listen to Isaiah? You know, they're not here anymore. And where are uh, the prophets who spoke those words? They're not here anymore either. But the implication of what he says in the next verse is, despite the fact that your ancestors are gone and the prophets too are gone, their words continue to live on forever. Their words continue to do the work that they do in the midst of God's people. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 says something very similar, does it not? 
Um, the, the, all flesh is grass. The grass of the field withers, the flowers fade, um, but the Word of the Lord, it stands forever. God's Word, God's prophetic Word, stands forever. And I just have to say, as a kind of empirical evidence, here we are, right? I mean, here we are this Sunday morning, coming together around a prophet who did his work in the latter part of the uh, 6th century B.C. and into the 5th century B.C. And we're sitting here talking about him. I mean, it's an astounding thing because we believe that this prophetic word has something to say and it has a reach that comes into our, our current moment as well. So Zechariah, anybody, here's the, here's the quiz for the week. Anybody remember what Zechariah's name means? You get, you, you get 10% off your stewardship pledge if you... <laughs> remember joking Don I was a joke the Lord remembers that's a, the Lord the Lord remembers the Lord remembers write that down remember um, the Lord remembers why, now why is Zechariah's name in and of itself as a name a prophetic word and activity the Lord remembers we talked about this a little bit last week um, the Lord remembering is a covenantal term. Um, it's not a term that we need to, by analogy, think of our own conception of remembering and apply that to the Lord. The Lord doesn't call things to mind in the sense that He has forgotten something that borders on the absurd. When He remembers, what He's doing is, Psalm 98 is a great psalm on this, by the way. When He remembers, He's calling to mind Himself. In other words, I, I, you may forget me, but I can't forget me. I've said this a few times. One of one of my children is uh, he's either going to be a sort of um, an, uh, sort of agnostic philosopher or theologian. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. Um, I'm praying one way, um, but uh, you know he'll he'll raise these very sort of complicated questions, and I'll say to said son, um, well, one thing for you to remember is um, if you struggle with the existence of God, you can be assured that God doesn't struggle with the existence of God. Right? He, God's not worried about that because he he is quite assured of himself and his and his person. God remembers, and what is it that he remembers? He remembers his election. He he remembers his own saving promises. And why was this a particular trouble, a struggle for the community that Zechariah was speaking to on the far side of the exile? Remember, their whole life had been turned upside down. The Capitol building had imploded in front of their eyes. Right? I mean, that would be the analogy, I think, into our world. Now, the temple was gone. It had been destroyed. The walls that provided for us the security so that we knew that we were safe from foreign invaders. And by the way, those walls worked for two years against the Babylonians and before they were finally starved out and behind those walls. So those walls did their work. I mean, there's a double-edged sword to that, but our walls were a massive sort of iconic representation of our safety. The temple was a sacramental presence of God in our midst. We knew that God would always be with us because His temple's there. The temple was the Garden of Eden. You realize this right? The, 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 the imagery that's used in the Bible to talk about the temple is Garden of Eden kind of language. In fact, Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are linked from a thematic standpoint to the temple. Right, God's temple in creation, and then God's particular temple here in in uh, in Jerusalem is a sacramental presence of God among His people. If we can reverse the requiem mass for the dead in the midst of life, we are in death. 
What the temple provides for the people historically was in the midst of death, we have life, right? We see life there, an existence, God is here. And all of that had been torn down. So they knew that God's promises from prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah were, this is momentary. This is a temporary judgment of the Lord. It's a real judgment. And it is from the Lord. You don't, don't get too excited about Nebuchadnezzar because he's a blip on the screen historically. And from a geopolitical standpoint, Nebuchadnezzar arises and he is gone. Um, so don't think too highly of Nebuchadnezzar. I use Nebuchadnezzar as the means to execute my own justice and will. But I promise you on the far side of this that I'm going to remember you. You think about Hosea, right? You're, 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 you're a wife that's gone astray, but I, I'm going to, we're going to get remarried again. The ending of Ezekiel chapter 16, again, you're a wife that's gone astray, but we're going to be remarried again in a covenant that's eternal. And they knew these promises to be true, or at least what God had told them. And here they are now, back in the land. And, uh, well, doesn't seem to be going according to plan. We've got difficulty. We have infrastructural problems left and right. From a, from a political standpoint, from a governmental standpoint, who's leading around here? I mean, how can we get things organized? And why is it that we're suffering? And why is it that you remember even what happens after the second temple is built? Those who could remember the first temple or had heard about it wept because they knew it didn't live up to what they had had before. So they were living in this angst that the promises of God are real. We're seeing them in some sort of diminutive form because we're not in exile anymore. We're back and God has used a Persian leader to allow us to go back but not everything seems to be up to par. And what's the prophet's message again? Zechariah's message is what Zechariah's message, uh, what, what Jeremiah's message was, what Isaiah's message was. The message is return. Come back to the Lord. He's waiting for you again and again. He's waiting. So Zechariah is set up with this introduction. I think Zechariah chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 are, is really the introduction to the book. If you want to have a sense of what Zechariah as a book is about, as you start to put the goggles, you know, the goggles and the snorkel on and you go deeper and deeper and then the water comes into the snorkel and it's like, uh oh, where are we now? It's good to remember Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. It provides you a little bit of map through this rather complicated book. But the first seven, the first six chapters of Zechariah are a series of visions, uh, night visions as they're called. Zechariah sees things. He has encounters. And he has encounters primarily with an angel. Right? An angel shows up and begins to speak with Jeremiah. I, I, I thought, I have, even have it in my notes, should I talk about angels some? Um, and the answer to that is no, I won't. Uh, well, maybe a, a little bit. Um, whatever conception you have of angels, I, I don't know. Just, let's just dump it, right? Um, they're, uh, you know... I think about this as Isaiah chapter 6. I was saying this to a class last week. You know, the seraphim um, angels that are above the throne of God, six wings that they cover their eyes and their face and they fly and then they have it over their feet. And they're just, I don't think of them as warm and cuddly, right? I mean, you think, what are those famous cherub um, paintings, you know, where they're kind of cute and puddly toddlers, you know. With, I mean, I don't know what your conception is, but um, that's not it, right? Um, matter of fact, those, those uh, seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 are, are more like snakes. I don't know how, I mean, they're, they're serpentine figures with wings that are flying toward Isaiah. I told this to this class I was teaching last week. If I was Isaiah and a serpentine figure um, flew toward me with hot tongs and a coal in his, I mean, it's like, 
dead, right? It's over. It's over. Um, So, I mean, these angels are significant figures. And they're significant enough that when you encounter them, people don't want to hang around. I think that's the point. They don't want to hang around. So we have these series of visions. The first vision, and I'd like... I'd like to do a little bit. Um, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna press. So seatbelts on. We're gonna do these real fast. The first vision is in chapter one, verse seven. And what happens here? And I'll just give you a, 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 the cliff's notes of this. Is a Zechariah sees a person on a red horse, or maybe a chestnut might be better, a chestnut horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and then behind him was were riders on a red, a brown, and a white horse. And so Je- uh, Zechariah asked the angel, what are these? And the angel who was walking with me, he said, I'm going to show you what they are. By the way, that term's important. A lot of showing going on. I'm going to show you what's going on. Um, that's a classic uh, advice given to classical writers, right? Show, don't tell. Um, well, he's going to show. He's going to show them what's going on. These are the ones that the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. Now notice, there's four of them. And that's going to be an important number that we're going to see throughout Zechariah. There's four. Which means that they're probably going to the four corners of the earth. This number four uh, tended to be understood from the standpoint of perfection or totality or comprehensiveness. So you have the four corners of the earth. You have the four spirits that go throughout the whole earth. There's a, a comprehensiveness here. So these four horsemen comprehensively together cover the entirety of the known world and they're going out to bring back a report to God. And they reported to the angel of the Lord. So what you see here is, I, I guess, some sort of um, structure among the hierarchies of the, of the semi-divine, right? Or the angelic. I mean, what's going on here? Well, you have the four horsemen who go out among the... Think Lord of the Rings here. Is that kind of... Right? The four horsemen go out among the world. They, they scan the universe to see what's going on in the known world, in the cosmos. And then they come back and they report to the angel of the Lord who then reports to the Lord Himself. So there's a chain of command here. And the, these uh, riders on their four different horses come back, and this is what they say. Um, we have gone throughout the earth, and we found that the whole world is at rest and in peace. Well, that's weird. Uh, because if we can identify uh, the time that Zechariah is doing his prophetic ministry, and he tells us here, the second year into Darius's reign. So this is like 520 uh, BC. Um, geopolitically, this was one of the most problematic times in the reign of Persia. There was, an, a, there was a transfer of power. And Darius spent the first two, three, four years of his reign as emperor of the Persian Empire putting out fires in Egypt, in India, I mean, all over the place. It was a mess. And he, was, and, and, and he did it quite successfully, by the way. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a bizarre thing to have these angels come back and say, we went around the whole world and uh, everything looks kind of fine. Uh, but if you read Isaiah chapter 14, verse 7... I'd like to read this to you quickly. Isaiah 14.7 says this, All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. 
Now that sounds like, well, boy, what'd you do? Just throw up, throw a dart and hit a verse? Um, no, but the, the, the language here is almost an overlap with the language of what these angels say. And if you read the context of Isaiah chapter 14, the context there is what will happen when Babylon is overthrown. Remember, Babylon is the means by which God's judgment is executed on his people. But there's a promise even in the book of Isaiah that Babylon will not have the final word. And when Babylon's destruction comes, then you will know peace. So it seems to me that the angels here are tapping into this Isaianic phrase and in tapping into that are claiming what God promised through Isaiah the prophet has come true. The Babylonians are no longer haunting God's people. There's, there's now peace. So they're claiming this. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how's this for an enter um, a, a conversation between the Lord's angel and the Lord himself? How long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The the evocative character of these visions and Zechariah being brought into a conversation with the angel, who then the angel has a conversation with the Lord himself, and Zechariah is just there observing. He's part of the dialogue. He's part of the talk. The angel of the Lord is representing the concerns of God's people to the Lord. I I would not even have to look at Calvin's commentary on this. I wouldn't even have to look. I I did look at it later. But But I... I wouldn't have to look here. I know exactly what Calvin would say. And Luther would say the same thing. The Lord Almighty is having a conversation with His angel. And the angel of the Lord is communicating to the Lord and interceding on behalf of His people. I mean, you know, in other words, it, it doesn't strain the imagination to understand this from a Trinitarian standpoint because we do see, do we not, that the identity of Jesus as a, our risen Lord and Savior, His identity now, His being now, His existence now, is to intercede to the Father on behalf of His people by the Spirit. And if you do enough work in the angel of the Lord, you realize that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is distinct from Yahweh and yet can speak with this first-person voice of Yahweh at the same time. So you're like, is the angel of the Lord Yahweh? Or is the angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord? And the answer is... Yes. So here he is. How long? He's praying for his people. And the Lord now speaks kind and comforting words. Um, Zechariah is a prophet that's known, as some of these latter prophets are, as a, a scriptural interpreting prophet. These prophets are reading other prophets, engaging other prophets borrowing material. The technical term is intertextuality. I, I wish I knew more about T.S. Eliot. I wish I knew what I was reading when I read it. Right? I, just, I just know it's beautiful. I always know it's like, April is the cruelest month. I like that. It's beautiful. Um, but one of, the thing, one of the aspects of Eliot's poetry that, again, I don't understand it. I'll let that Jim lecture on this. Now, but one of the things I love about um, Eliot's poetry is his embedding of older material into these newer poems to bring them new life. He talks about Carthage. He'll refer to Augustine. I mean, all, and, and, there, and he doesn't say, by the way, as Augustine said, right. or as Homer said. It, it's just there. 
And it's all fun for later interpreters to come through and figure out, well, what are the sources that Elliot is drawing from? Well, you can see right here that Zechariah is certainly drawing from Isaiah. Kind and comforting words. What's the great shift that happens in Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Um, and, and he's drawing on that. He's, the Lord is now speaking these comforting words to the angel. And this is what the angel who was speaking to me said. Proclaim this word. He's now coming from Yahweh back to Zechariah. Tell this word. This is what the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Zabaot, this is what he says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. This is another area where I think we, we would do well not to make an analogy from our own understanding of jealousy to the Lord himself. This might better be translated zealous. I'm very zealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. Now, isn't this an interesting phrase? This kind of thing that you almost wish God wouldn't say. I was only a little angry. But they went too far with their punishment. You hear that? I was going to use Babylon. And I was going to use them as the means of your judgment. And I was angry with you. And rightly so was I angry with you. You had forgotten your covenant fidelity to me. And I gave you prophet after prophet after prophet to encourage you to turn. But you just you wouldn't listen to me. So I was angry with you. But not that angry. They, they, they abused you. I think this might help us understand what... Isaiah means when he said that they have paid double for their sins in Isaiah chapter 40. What do you mean double? Well, the, the, the punishment that they, that, they, uh, that they had and that they experienced went, went too far. And now God's angry. That's why in Babylon, not here anymore. All right, they're gone. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to return to Jerusalem with mercy. My house is going to be rebuilt there. The measuring line will be stretched out of Jerusalem, declares the Lord. Proclaim this further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion. This is that Isaiahic theme. And will choose Jerusalem. What's that? That's the reconstitution again of, of Israel's election before God. I'm choosing her. She's mine. That's vision number one. Now listen to vision number two. Similar theme here about the nations. Then I looked up. And, okay, I'll make this super fast and you can go. And therefore, before me were four horns. Oh, these horns. I can remember as a kid hearing about the horns and the prophets and going, I'm out. I don't know what horns are, right? Um, but what were these horns? Well, the horn is a metaphoric representation for the strength of an animal, right? I mean, an animal's strength is found in his or her horns. Um, and this is the strength, then, of the nations. This is, so this is a metaphor here. And so I saw these four horns, and I asked the angel, what are these? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are the nations that exhibited their strength and, and brought severity against my people and scattered them throughout the whole world, the diaspora. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. This is a fascinating word. Various kinds of artisans, metal worker, wood worker. So I saw four horns and then I saw four craftsmen. So you can, and by the way, the picture that we're going to see of these, they're rather bur, I can't think of these other than being sort of burly figures. So you got a lot of sweat and hair, big forearms, right? And the hammers and blacksmith tools. We were at Williamsburg, Virginia this summer and we saw those blacksmiths doing their thing, right? So the blacksmith tools, they've got hammers, they've got their, their um, various planers. 
And then he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their heads. But the craftsmen have come for two reasons. To terrify them and to throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter his people. Um, So what's the imagery here? The imagery is these horns that have established themselves as powerful and have exerted their power against you in ways that went way beyond anything that I would ever have authorized. Well, now I have these craftsmen and they've brought their hammers, they've brought their sanders, they've brought their um, their planers, and they're going to cut these horns down. I think that's that's the image that's left here. And what it shows, I believe, is that God's understanding of His sovereignty over the nations and over the kingdoms again stretches not just to Jerusalem and to Israel, but to the four to the four corners of the earth. Um, next week, when we come back together, um, uh, actually, I'm not teaching next week. Some, someone's going to be here next week, but then the week after, um, we'll come back and we'll get into some of these other visions that, uh, visions as well. I wish we had time for questions, but I might have to let you go. Okay, Father, uh, send us off with your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for a prophet like Zechariah who saw such wondrous things, Lord, and interesting and peculiar things. But they tell us about your sovereign reach over the entirety of the world. And the fact, Lord, that you are intimately involved with your people in the middle of that. In Jesus' name.